are talking tonight about God's self-existence. Anthony's going to be talking about that. Uh, before we begin, as, as has been our practice this summer, we want to give you a chance to kind of quiet yourself and meditate a little bit on Scripture. So I'm going to read through this passage one time and then give you a, a minute to, to kind of read through it silently yourself and, and just kind of think through what it may be, and then I'll pray us in and we'll start our life. Psalm 90, verses 1 through 14. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Mm. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sign. The years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength aiding, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Take a moment to read that through yourself, then we'll begin. God, as we open your word, as we pause to consider more of who you are, I pray that you would, in mercy and grace, reveal more of yourself tonight. Give us a bigger picture of you that shapes our hearts and our lives. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good evening, people. Um, for our discourse, we're going to take time Mostly in the second verse, let me check to see if we're recording. Yes, we're recording. Glory to God. And let me start my uh, timer to make sure that we end on time. Okay. All right. So, in our discourse, we are going to consider um, 
particularly the second verse of this passage. We're going to bring in some of the other portions of this text, uh, but I want our main consideration to be what the mind of the Holy Spirit is with regard to what God is like as he is being communicated in the second verse. And so uh, there are a few things that I want us to focus in on here. Uh, First is that the psalmist, which is Moses, by the way, this is what we call the prayer of Moses. It is one of the, it is, I believe, the only text in the Bible which is not contained in the Torah, which is written by Moses, the man of God. And it is a prayer and full of Moses-like things. And all of the songs which Moses writes, he has written three that the Bible have on record, has on record. Um, And all of them have to do with God's judgment. So in the book of Exodus, he is rejoicing about how God has plunge Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Um, In Deuteronomy 32, he's talking about God's covenant vengeance, which he will visit upon his people when they break his covenant. And then we have the song of um, Moses here in the 90th Psalm, which is dealing with uh, the transcendent majesty of God and then the frailty of his creatures in light of that majesty of God. Uh, God is put forward in this passage to be gloriously sufficient for the people of God, as we see in the first verse, that God has been our dwelling place in all generations. And yet, though God is sufficient, his sufficiency is highlighted by the deficiency of his people. So we find that God turns us away to dust. We are kind of at his whim. Uh, he, He makes us out of dust, he sends us back to dust, he, we perish in his wrath, and so he's highlighting the majesty of God by the frailty of his creatures. And the highlighted portion, I think, of the majesty of God is here, and there are three pictures which uh, Moses would like for us to see. Firstly, it is the picture of the mountain. It says, before the mountains were brought forth. And so, in the ancient world, a mountain is a picture of permanence, and it is a picture of ancientness. A person could not consider, uh, I mean, can you even consider, think of the world, and think of it with having no mountains, no mountain ranges. There is something awesome and grand about mountains in the scriptures. Um, They are overwhelming in their immensity. They seem to be very immovable. Um, And they are rather ancient. You know, if we just ask a geologist, we might have some in the room. You people are in college, many of you. Um, You would know that many mountains, uh, they're just ancient. They pre-exist human beings. The Bible talks about, in the book of Ecclesiastes, how essentially the mountains just watch as ages and ages and generations and generations of people are born and they die and yet the mountains are still there. And yet what the psalmist would have us to see is that though the mountains are this glorious symbol of permanence and this glorious symbol of ancientness, uh, it's not more ancient than the ancient of days. The mountains, despite their permanence, yet have a beginning. It says, before the mountains were brought forth. First of all, it's indicating that there was a period in time when the mountains were not. And not only that, but they were brought forth. That means they came into existence by the agency of another. That's what the term brought forth uh, particularly stresses. Uh, Bringing forth, for anyone who's had children in the room, is based on the agency of another. It's not just that the mountains poofed into existence. They were brought forth into the world by uh, what we will see later on to be the power of God. And so we see that these 
images in the natural world of permanence are yet uh, movable, they're yet created, they are yet caused, they are dependent. And this is going to contrast later on what Moses has to say about God. Not only do we have the picture of the mountain, but we have the picture of, we have two pictures, which uh, really at a glance you can skip over, but if you'll notice in the second line, he uses two different words for the earth. Um, you probably would just lump these things together, but there is a distinction that he makes because he says, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Those are two different words, and it's actually in the Hebrew. Uh, I have up on, on the screen the Greek of the, uh, that's in the uh, Septuagint because I actually am conversant with Greek and not Hebrew because Hebrew is rough. So uh, the first, the earth, is uh, talking about this terrestrial globe. It's talking about this third rock from the sun. We could call it Promundo Continente. That is the world containing the world as that encapsulates all living things. The world where we live. And I think that the stress of this world... Uh, this, this word, word, world, is that not the world as um, disparate from heaven. Usually the term here is, it's heaven and earth, uh, the, the word eretz here in the Hebrew. It usually is a foil for heaven, but I think it's actually representative of the entire creative order. And so it's speaking of the world as created, the world as coming from nothing. And it speaks of the world in all of its phenomenal trappings. So that would have to do not just with the physical realm, but I think it has to do with also everything that God has made, including angelic bodies and, and the heavens itself. Because it's, I think the, the stress here is the createdness of the world. But not only do we have the world containing, but we have promundo contento, which is the world contained. That deals with the intelligent part of the world, that which dwells in the world. So human beings and angels. And so it's saying that God exists before all of created existence, which makes sense because if it's created, it had to be created at a certain point in time. But not only does he exist before all created existence, he exists before all intelligent existence. Now why might this be significant? In the third verse, he gives the contrast. It says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I was really befuddled when I was reading this and studying this passage because I was wondering why Scott assigned this for this attribute of God. I was reading it and I was like, this has nothing to do with a deity. What's wrong with you, Scott? <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, why would he assign this passage to me? And I just was thinking about it. I was like, well, Scott's smart. And I'm sure there's a reason. And so I took time, and when I started reading commentaries, there was a particular uh, line from John Calvin as he was doing exposition on this text. And he said that the issue here is not that he merely wants us to see God as eternal, but he wants us to see God as eternally God, if you take a look at your text. It's not merely from everlasting to everlasting you are, it's from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, 
as opposed to everything else that is in creation. And so he wants us to see that before the mountains were formed, before the most permanent things in the universe began to be, there was an uncaused cause of everything else that exists. That uncaused cause is God. And the deity of that being was in himself deity without respect to these mountains. He wants us to see that as opposed to the ancient pagan world, uh, worldview of like the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, where you had their gods who came up out of the primordial ooze, they were kind of um, a derivative of creation itself. You had in the ancient world an idea that really matter was a permanent, eternal thing, and the gods kind of came out of matter. I'm reminded of a story of the Norse gods. There were three, and I can't remember their names because they're vain idols. And they, uh, they were in ice. They were trapped in ice. They're Norse gods. One of them was Odin. They were trapped in ice, and there was this magic golden cow, and the cow licked up the ice, and then they came free, and they slew this giant, and then they created the, the earth out of the teeth of the giant, and then the mountain ranges were the spine of the giant. It's crazy. But um, you have this trend in all of these pagan religions where the divine essence comes up out of creation. And what he wants us to see when he says that before the earth was formed is that the deity of God is not bound to earth. It's not bound to the physical creation. He was God before there was an earth. And not only was he God before there was an earth, he was God before there was intelligent creation. So he was God before there was anyone to ever glorify him as God, to ever acknowledge him as God, to ever realize him as God. He was not diminished in one whit, though there was nothing in existence to ever honor him as God. He was still perfect in power in all of eternity as God. There were no angels crying holy, 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 but he was still holy before there were angels. He was all wise before there was anything yet brought forth. And this is what Mo no, yeah, Moses. This is what Moses would like for us to see in this passage that God is God of himself apart from his creation, which leads us to this doctrine that let me I can't remember how I phrase this doctrine. It's that the godhead of the deity is eternally perfect and entire of itself, that means of its own godhead, and apart from creation. Now we're going to have to kind of break down what that means for you. That God's deity is perfect. The, the Godhead. Godhead is a fancy word of just saying the Godness. It's literally what it means. It's a cognate from the German language. And it means that which makes God, God. It's not found in anything else other than God. Or in another word, that the being of God is necessary only to itself. Uh, unlike us, we are what we would call contingent beings. So, you and I, we have to have food, and we have to have water, and we have to have sunlight, and we have to breathe air, and then, like, if you're extra needy, you need, like, love from people, and friendship, and all of these things <laughs> that half the time I don't understand. And uh, I, but that's wholly unlike God. God stands outside of uh, any need of anything. And this is the doctrine that we call God's aseity. It is, um, comes from the Latin word. It means that he is from himself. He is, 
he stands alone of himself. He does not need to eat. He never gets weary. He does not need to sleep. He does not, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he does not learn. There is nothing outside of the being of God that God needs. And that's a very important doctrine that we should understand. There are two ways in which we can understand the doctrine of aseity. We can understand God's aseity. I don't know if I have that in, in the... If we don't have it in the slides, I'll just write it on the board, and then it'll be in two places. We can consider God's aseity in two senses. His aseity ad intra, and his aseity ad... His aseity ad extra. And I just like writing on the board anyway. It makes me feel very official. So I'll write on the board. So God's aseity ad intra. That is God's self-existence with reference to his own being and person. That suggests a few things. That one, God is the only logical foundation for his own being. That God needs not any appeal higher than himself to justify his being. Um, this, if you get into people like Anselm of Canterbury, you start getting into um, ontological arguments for the existence of God, for instance. So uh, Anselm would say that God cannot not be. God is what we call a necessary being. It is necessary that God exists. It is a logical impossibility that God could not exist because he in himself is being simply considered. And since being exists, therefore God exists. And his own being is what predicates the logical foundation for his being. Not only is he logically sufficient for himself, but he is naturally sufficient for all of his attributes. So as I already discussed before, God is sufficient in himself for his own wisdom. He is sufficient in himself for his own power. He is sufficient in himself for his own uh, knowledge is kind of like wisdom. I'm trying to think of some other third thing. It's all right. We'll figure it out after a while. And, bad and, bad. and so he's sufficient for all of these natural qualities. His glory, for instance. God doesn't have to go and get a lamp so he can be glorious. He is glorious in and of himself from eternity. And not only is he sufficient in himself for his natural attributes, but he is sufficient in himself for his moral attributes. His moral attributes would be his righteousness, his justice, his loving kindness, his wrath, his tender mercy. We talk about this all the time, how in the first epistle of John we say that God is love. Not just that God is really, really loving, he is love. And that is because of something that we call his supernality. Supernality simply means that God is above. The word super means above. And you have to jump when you say that. His supernality that God is so high above everything in the order of being that there is nothing that he can appeal to which is higher than himself. So when we talk about the justice of God, God does not have some sort of rule book over his head that he appeals to that says, well, let's see, what does this book say? You know, like lawyers, they have to go to, to law school and they have to learn what the Constitution says. But God is his own Constitution. There is nothing where we can just stand... The book of Job says this. Well, Job will describe this better than I will, because it's in your Bible. It says, what court can I take the Lord to? Like, what attorney can I bring before the bar of God? Like, what tribunal can I appeal to so that 
um, someone would be able to mete out justice between me and God. Like, can you imagine if you had some sort of ought between you and God, and, like, you were going to charge him with wrong? Like, where would you go to adjudicate that? Yeah, you can't go anywhere, because he's God. <laughs> and so, this, this is the supernality of God, that he's so high that there is no bar of justice that you can appeal from him. That he is his own standard of righteousness. And therefore, um, it's really a vain attempt when people would go about and say, well, I just don't like what God did, and I just don't feel like that's just that he exterminated the Canaanites. Well, okay, can you give me a better rule as to why God shouldn't have? Well, I just don't like it. Okay, well, we'll see how that works for you. Because God, he, he's, he doesn't have to appeal to anything other than himself. And it's the same thing with his love. Many people will look at God and say, I don't think that what God does in only sending Jesus to save those who have faith in him, and he only makes one way of salvation. I don't really see how that's a loving thing to do. Well, um, God doesn't need you to define love for him. God doesn't fit into our categories of love. It is what God does himself that expresses what loving kindness is. And it is God's prerogative to tell his creation that this is how you respond to me in a loving way. And it doesn't work the opposite way. Not only does this doctrine of his aseity speak to his supernality, it also speaks to what we call his blessedness. The blessedness of God refers to such a fullness that is in the divine being that he is at a continual, infinite uh, uh, fullness of joy. The Bible says that in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in 2 Timothy, the gospel is called the gospel of the blessed God. And, And blessed in the Bible is just a fancy word for saying the happy God. Which is very odd for us to think about, that God is eternally happy. I don't think I ever even thought about this growing up, but if I were ever to think about the emotional state of God, I'd probably think of him as probably angry, maybe kind of, uh, maybe kind of neutral, kind of stoic. But actually because of God's fullness that he has in himself, that he has a perpetual source of joy in himself, especially when we consider the doctrine of the Trinity, where you have the Father has an eternal love for his Son, and the Son has an eternal love for the Father, and the Spirit is this eternal bond of love between the Father and the Son, and there is an overwhelming fullness of joy in God which is actually a marvel that he would even create, right? The idea that God would make flawed, awful creatures when he is in the blessedness of the Trinity is something that every time I think about it, it just really boggles my mind. Because you're going to go from awesome glory and power and beauty forever and ever, and then you're going to entertain yourselves with worms of the dust. I, I, it, it's a marvel of the wisdom of God to me that though he is so full of blessedness and joy in himself that he would condescend to create. Uh, and I, I could go on to a, an objection, but that's for later. Um, not only is he full of joy in and of himself, but we also have, like I was saying before, God's super, not, well, his aseity, 
ad extra. That is his aseity as it is employed to his creatures. That is God's self-sufficiency with reference to us. And this is a very important thing that, first of all, because God is self-sufficient, he stands without need of us. So God is not augmented by our prayers. He is not bound if we don't go out on missions. Um, the A.W. Tozer says in one of, in his book, uh, the, it's not the knowledge of the holy. Is it the knowledge of the holy, the attributes of God? The knowledge of the holy. He talks about, in the section that talks about um, omnipotence, he, ta- he says that if everybody in the world were to become an atheist, God would not be diminished in his power one whit. Because God's being is not dependent on you or me. God's being is, I mean, it's here in the text. The, Moses wants us to see how we are really at the whim, beck, and call of God. We are literally in the most intense sense of the word, at God's mercy. When God pleases, he simply says, return, O man, to dust. And when God pleases, he can put all of our sins in front of our faces. God is by no means bound to us. And yet, God's sufficiency in himself is also engaged for us that believe. And that's the beauty of verses one, verse 1 and verse 12 and verse 13 and 14, where in verse 1, though God has deity in himself apart from his creation, yet Moses praises God that he is our dwelling place in all ages. Which, it's this doctrine that's really an important anchor for our souls, because if we were to just stop at God doesn't need you, then that really leads quickly into deism, because God just creates the world, he doesn't really need us, he can just leave, and that's that. But God actually rejoices to employ his sufficiency for his people. The Bible actually speaks in the book of Isaiah. It says that God exalts himself to have mercy on us. The Bible says in another place, I think it's Isaiah 47, it says that thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. That's that idea of God's supernality, that he's so high. And what does the high and lofty one say? I am with the poor and lowly. I'm with the contrite at heart. That's the beauty of our God, that he's not merely transcendent, that he's not merely self-sufficient and that he keeps it for himself, but the marvel of creation is that it is the overflow of the sufficiency of God. And the marvel of redemption is that it is the overflow of the sufficiency of God, which opens to thoughts in my brain. One, it's that God is completely free to create or to save whom he will, but also that God is... Oh, I forgot what the second point was. Well, that's all right. We'll just move on. (laughs) I had it. It was on the tip of my tongue. This is Anthony's brain. It works like that. So, if I get it back, I'll tell you. But since I've forgotten it, let's move on to some uh, objections that can be made either to this doctrine or from this doctrine. Uh, The first actually comes from the Quran, uh, if any of you are conversant with the Quran. It's in Surah Talmaida, which is the fifth surah in the Quran. And it's an objection to the deity of Christ. Surah Talmaida, Ayah 75, says, Christ, the son of Mary, was not but a messenger, and his mother was among the God-fearing. He and his mother both used to eat food See how we make our signs very clear. 
and see how they are so deluded away from the truth. Now, those who are deluded away from the truth are Christians, because we say that Jesus is God. And so the argument, if you're, if you're following the logic of the writer of the Quran there, is that Jesus cannot be God. It's also arguing that Mary can't be God, because the Quran seems to be under the impression that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and Mary. So that's a, a thing. But that's neither here nor there. So Jesus is not God. And the reason why he is not God is because he eats food. And it's actually a very sound argument. Premise one, God does not eat food. Let me see how much time I got. Premise two, Jesus eats food. Conclusion, Jesus is not God. And I have a twofold answer. First of all, it is not a proper way to argue that simply because God does not eat food that he could not eat food if he pleased. When we talk about the aseity of God, it's not saying that God cannot interact with his creation. It's not saying that God cannot... Um, as a matter of fact, there's a verse in the Quran itself that says that if God wanted a son, speaking of, once again against the deity of Christ, against the sonship of Christ, saying, far be it from Allah to have a son. If he wanted a son, he could choose of any of the creatures that he has made. But he hasn't. So, he doesn't want a son. So stop saying that Jesus is the Son of God, because that's awful. And Allah will fight you if you say that. And so, um, in that text it says, if God wanted to, he could have a son. He just doesn't want to have a son. And in the same way, if God wanted to, he could eat food as much as he wanted. He just doesn't need to eat food. It is not the same thing to say that God has no need for food, and to say that God is not able to eat food. As a matter of fact, if you were to say that God is not able to eat food, it would be an affront to the doctrine of his omnipotence, because I think it would be a rather easy thing for God to be able to eat food if he pleased. Uh, and so it is no argument against the deity of Christ to say that he eats food because God may eat food if he gets ready to. The second argument is an argument from Christ's kenosis that we realize that Christ is not only God, but he is truly a man. And this is one of the wonders of the Christian faith, right? That God entered into his creation. That God was not merely, he wasn't barred by his godness from entering into his creation and interacting with his creatures. The Bible says in uh, Proverbs, not Proverbs, Philippians, the second chapter, that uh, we should let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not think it robbery, that though he were equal with God, he emptied himself. And note what the emptying of himself is. It's not that he ceases to be God. It's not that he lays aside his divinity. He empties himself by taking on the form of a servant. So he doesn't cease to be God. The form of the servant, because the form of the God, being in the form of God means he was truly God. And being in the form of a servant means that he was truly a servant, i.e. a man. And we know that he was a man because he suffered on the cross, and he died, and then he was highly exalted and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so Christ becomes a servant, and he becomes truly a servant, as true as he is truly God. And so as a true man, he thus eats, because true men eat food. But an argument that Jesus is man is not an argument against his deity. Uh, 
because as Christians, we very, very gladly accept that Jesus is a man. We're not Gnostics. We're Christians. We believe that Jesus had a physical body. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom with God and men. But yet, he is not only a man. He is the God-man in one person forever. And so, much for the first objection. The second objection comes from our good friends, the Latter-day Saints, where they would point out that in this passage, the word that is translated here, everlasting, in Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily mean everlasting. It actually it literally just means, from the horizon to the horizon, you are God. Now, this is very important argument that they would make because this text is very problematic for the Mormon position. The Mormon position is that uh, God was once a man that dwelt upon a planet. He has a body of flesh and bone and he became God through obedience to gospel law. And so when you have a text in the Bible that says that God is God from everlasting to everlasting, it kind of pokes a hole in that. And so what they would argue is that this term, and, and this is true, that the term olam in Hebrew, it has multiple acceptations, and one of those acceptations is the horizon. Now, first of all, I don't really know what it means for God to be God from horizon to horizon, uh, but also it's very clear from the context of the text itself that this is a temporal relationship that we're talking about. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, before the earth was formed, if you were to use the term horizon, you would be making an idea that this is a spatial argument, which I don't know what it would have to do with the temporal nature of this text. He's saying that he was God before everything existed. And this is how we can simply refute any kind of idea that God is, was ever at one time not God. Or um, even the idea that uh, the earth and matter and all these things are eternal. Because the Bible is very clear that there was a time before all of these things came into existence, and yet God was still God. He did not grow into his estate of being God. He did not learn his way into his estate of being God. He was God from everlasting to everlasting. My third objection is uh, based upon something I said a few weeks ago when I was talking about how God creates all things to tend to his own glory. Because if we're talking about God creating things to tend to his own glory, well, wouldn't that thus bind him uh, to his creation? Because if God doesn't have creation, then nothing can glorify him. And so thus he's in need of his creation to bring him glory. And I would answer that God's design in bringing about his glorification through his creation is not something that is necessary to his being, it's something that he willed to occur. God would have been just as glorious and blessed if he had never created anything at all. God would not be uh, less if you did not exist. But it was God's good pleasure that he should have a creation that brings him glory. Now this is, this is by the free action of his will. This is out of no necessity on the part of God. This is not because God was uh, somehow declining and then the only resource that he had at his disposal was that he had to create the world. It was out of his own wisdom, 
out of his own love, out of his own joy. And as a matter of fact, the Bible speaks in the, in the book of John how um, God giving a people to his son is actually an expression of that perfect love which exists between the Father and the Son from all of eternity. It's in the book of John in the 17th chapter where he said, Yours they were, and you have given them to me. That God had a people that he had purposed to love, and that he had purposed in Christ, and he wanted to express the fullness of himself in giving them to the Son. This does not demand anything from the nature of God. It does not lessen God if he had not implemented the plan of salvation. But it is a free action of his will. Let's move on to some uses to be made of this doctrine. The first use is that I believe that this doctrine of the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God should be used to remind us of those glorious doctrines of the Reformation. Now this might just sound random to you, but I really don't think that it's random. If God's self-sufficiency is employed for His people, then the doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, are fundamental doctrines. The, the main issue in the book of Galatians uh, though there was the issue that Paul did not want the church to split between Jew and Gentile. The main issue is that when the Jewish people were telling people, you could be justified by Christ, but you just need to add something. You just need something else other than Jesus. You need Jesus and circumcision. You need Jesus and to add just a little bit of you need to add just a little bit of dietary food laws, and, and then it'll be better. What that does is it is an affront to the sufficiency of Christ for his people. When you're saying that faith in Christ alone is not enough to bring us peace with God, but you need faith in Jesus, plus you have to go and save a certain amount of prayers. Plus, you need to go and do this certain ritual over here. Plus, you need to go and feel bad in the corner for five minutes. It speaks of Christ's sufficiency as if it is not enough for us. And this is something that we have to just really be aware of because the doctrine of salvation by uh, justification by grace through faith, it sounds wonderful at first, but it's very difficult to live out. Because there's something in us that really wants a stake in our own justification. There's something in us that really, even if we, we don't want a stake in our justification, it's hard to believe. Well, this is just me. Maybe it's just me. It's hard to believe sometimes that Christ is enough. And yet Christ is enough. It's so easy, and, and this is why, just for years, all kinds of heresies pop up. You need Jesus, and, and also there are these special angels that come down, and, and you can have a spirit medium, and you can just talk to your angel. Well, well, I thought Jesus was, well, yeah, there's Jesus, but these angels. Okay, well, oh, that actually sounds kind of cool, you know. Um, I actually was, I wasn't really into the angel thing when I was a teenager, but the, the idea of angels and the idea of, of spiritual warfare and knowing your angels, it was just a very fascinating idea. 
And there are lots of shiny new things that want to catch your attention. And essentially it wants to say, yeah, Jesus is a, he's a great to start with. But there's something deeper that you can that you can do. There are secrets to the trade that you can't necessarily find them in the Bible, but there are secrets that can just really get you in with God. And we have to come back to the biblical doctrine that what Christ did on the cross is enough. Because what Christ did on the cross was God availing his self-sufficiency for us. And if we were, are to leave that, Paul says that you are cut off from Christ. Jesus will only be a full Savior. He's not going to have His grace piecemealed out by some sort of agent. He is either going to have all the glory in our salvation, or you won't be saved. So pick one. Second, I would like to remind us that God has given us means whereby we can lay hold of His sufficiency for us. Uh, these are very common means. There's nothing new or fancy about them. Uh, the first means that he gives us is the means of prayer. God would not have us to sit idly by like birds in a nest with our mouths agape, waiting for God to drop things in. But faith works in the people of God a heart cry. Faith causes prayer in a believer. This is why the Bible doesn't just say, believe on the Lord and you shall be saved. The Bible says, Who shall, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is a confession that is made when God creates faith in the heart. God would have us to call upon Him. God would have us to call upon Him in order to make ourselves know our need for Him. We have a profound need for Him, and I, I just know personally... It's easy to just slip up a kind of by-the-way, by-the-by prayer or give God 15 minutes, but there should be an eternal cry in our hearts when we realize how empty we are and how full God is. And Jesus has told us that if we ask, we shall receive. If we knock, the door will be open. And what James tells us is the reason why we don't receive is because we either don't ask or we ask amiss. And so we ought to develop a habit of being an intense prayer before the Lord. We ought to reflect on how much we need God. Like, when was the last time you just thought about how much you need God? And when you wake up in the morning, that you can't draw a breath without God. That your heart cannot beat without God. That you can't lift a pinky finger without God. And do you call upon Him and ask Him to help you? That you cannot will to do that which is pleasing in His sight, neither can you work to do that which is pleasing in His, in his sight, unless God is in you to will and to work it. And thus we must take, make use of the means that God has given us in prayer. Not only in prayer, but God has given us a means in fasting. Now fasting is not something I do very often, but fasting is not some sort of secret magic spell or a magic work. Fasting is an aid to prayer. Because fasting is designed to cause us to feel in our body our need. Because when you don't eat, you just are tired all the time and you just, well, you need food. And we're to, to turn that need of food to a need for God. And whenever we feel the pangs of hunger, we're, we, we cry out for God as uh, someone lost in a weary land. 
where there is no water. And we know that God is the one who can help in our time of need. When we think about unsaved loved ones, and we think about uh, things that we need from God, and we just pray about it idly, and then we pass it by. What, what fasting does is it causes us to remember, no, I need God. I need to stay here and call upon Him until I get an answer. The Bible says that the fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous man avails much. And fasting augments, can augment, that fire in prayer. And this is why the Bible calls it in the book of Leviticus, an afflicting of the soul. Because um, if fasting is not attended with a true soul sense of your need for God, fasting is useless. There are lots of people who just fast because, well, you know, honey, I'm just doing the Daniels fast because I need to lose weight. And I'm doing intermittent fasting because, you know, I just need to, I'm trying to get my summer body on. and I need to fit into these sweaters. That, that, that has no spiritual merit to it at all. <laughs> but... When we fast recognizing that I need to be reminded of my need for God, it makes all the difference in the world. Thirdly, uh, the sacraments. That is baptism and the Lord's Prayer, particularly the Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper because we don't get baptized every We should not be getting baptized um, every week. Um, particularly the Lord's Supper. There is a reason why Christ commends himself to us under the species of bread and wine. There's a reason why Jesus says that I am the living bread which comes down out of heaven. And eat my flesh, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part in me. And the reason why is not because we need some sort of um, spell to happen on the altar when someone blesses the, the consecrated host. What it is, is that Jesus is commending himself, his flesh, that is, his person, his blood, which is his life. He's commending it for our soul satisfaction. And when we take the bread, and when we take the cup, what we are being reminded of is that Jesus is the one that can fill us. Jesus is the one that can satisfy us. There's so much... Uh, so much of my life that I go a-begging to be satisfied because I just won't be satisfied by Jesus. Well, yeah, I know there's Jesus, but there's this other third thing that seems really interesting. And it's like, come to me. Come to Jesus. Like, don't, don't go off on your forays of, of um, fancy. Don't go off on, on trying to satisfy yourself in... Um, Finding a spouse or uh, finding a better paying job or, um, you know, having a wonderful house. Like, what is going to satisfy you? Drew said one time, and every time he says it, it's a powerful time. I can't remember what lesson it was. But he was talking about climbing up on the ladder to success. And when you climb, you, you're probably going to miss Jesus. And he said, I just remember he was in this room the first time he said it, and he was on a ladder, and he was like, he was way up there. And he said that when you get to the top of the ladder, what you're going to find is that there's nothing. There's nothing at the top of the ladder. It's emptiness. Solomon said that he obtained all the wealth a person could find, and all of it was vanity. He did all the partying he could do, and it was vanity. He had 
1,000 concubines, well he, well, he had, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines or something to that effect, and it was vanity. He had all the wisdom in the world and it profited him nothing apart from God. Because it is only God that works in all of these things to give us our satisfaction. So that when we go out to eat, and Matt Chandler said this, that when we go to eat a fajita, that our aim should not be for that food to be what satisfies us, but that should lead our hearts in worship to God. Not only is that a means of grace, but there's the ministry of God's Word which is the final means of grace that I have in this list. The means of God's word, the ministry of the word, is very important because we, in our fallen state, are apt to forget. I remember um, Martin Luther's last sermon is well known for its anti-Semitism, but it also has um, very sobering statements about the plight of human beings. He says that when... I first came preaching these doctrines of the Reformation. You were crying out to hear the word of God. And now, after some 20 years, now you're going to find the breast milk of the Virgin Mary and you're trying to touch Joseph's pants so that you can get some indulgences. And he said that you have just turned so quickly aside from the way of truth. We are people of dull and slow understanding. Ah, darn it. It's all right. I'm almost done. People of dull and slow understanding. And if we don't have the reminder of God's word to inform us over and over and over again, we are apt to go astray. I know, um, you know, we'll think, well, it's only 66 books in the Bible, and I've already read that. Do I really re- need to read it again? Well, is your life right? Like, <laughs> until your life is right, you're going to need this Bible. Like, you can never stop learning the lesson which Jesus gives in His Word. And while, we're the, while the devil's trying to entice us to get something new, it's because you think that you've already mastered your lesson book and you haven't. Uh, that's one, well, since we're talking about Martin Luther, that's one of his um, very searing harangues against ministers in his day. He said they think they're beyond learning their catechism. They think that they're beyond repeating the Ten Commandments to themselves. They think they're beyond reciting the Apostles' Creed. They think they're beyond remembering the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And I promise you, you will never be past it. Because we are so in need of constant reminder until the day that God glorifies us. And I'm out of time. Let's pray. Father God, how often I go about full of myself, full of my own capabilities, full of my own acumen. How often I forget that I'm actually, as the Bible says in the book of Revelation, I'm blind and naked and poor and wretched. And I pray, God, that by your Spirit you would prompt us to come to Christ so that he might give us eye salve for our eyes, and that he might give us clothes to cover our nakedness, and that he might give us money that we might buy bread. God, you are full and sufficient. And I thank you that in Jesus you have employed that fullness and sufficiency 
for us. Grant that we should lay hold upon it through the means that you have appointed. All of these things we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.